0: How are you, G.I. Joe? It seems to me that most of you are poorly informed about the going of the war. They say nothing about a correct explanation of your presence over here.
1: She was nicknamed Hanoi Hannah, a radio propagandist for the North Vietnamese. Much like Tokyo Rose in World War II, Hannah's mission was poke at U.S. morale, intimidate, create doubt.
0: Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war, to die or to be maimed for life without the faintest idea of what's going on.
1: She would, on occasion, read the names of U.S. troops killed in action or taken prisoner. And she would forewarn U.S. pilots that they would face endless ground fire and hellish misery if they were captured. All her information was taken from American publications at home and abroad. In mid-1966, an Air Force jet fighter shot down an enemy MiG-21. That aerial dogfight got an enormous amount of press, including the names of the Air Force pilots, one of whom was Lieutenant Dwayne Butell of Chillicothe, Illinois. Dwayne was later told that Hanoi Hanna delivered an on-air message that essentially said, Lieutenant Buttel, we'll be waiting for you. Butel was less concerned with that threat than the reality of the robust North Vietnamese air defense system.
0: I was frightened every time I went up, but I was afraid not to go. I was afraid of letting that other guy down.
1: Dwayne Butel flew more than 150 missions over enemy territory, and he can't remember a single time when he didn't take fire. This is his story. So before we get into military history, I want to establish that you were a pretty good athlete back in the day, and Chillicothe. you were a high school quarterback?
0: I was, uh, but you know, I wouldn't say I was a pretty good athlete. My school was only 400 kids. Yes, I was quarterback on a football team, I was a starting guard on a basketball team, and I was pretty fast, and I, was, I ran on a relay team, and I pole vaulted. And so I got accolades for doing those things. I was by no means a star, I wasn't out setting any records, but I was good enough to be in those positions, realizing my class was only 100 kids and my school was only around 400. And so I go out on my way to say, no, yeah, I was a good you were, athlete. You were, but
1: I, you were still named to the Greater Peoria Hall of Fame, Athletic Hall of Fame. So that's a nice ticket.
0: I, yeah, I, I was. But it, it's part of my football team because our football team was undefeated for three years or something. And so the Chillicothe Gregos, it was quite a deal. You're being so, modest. So our whole team was inducted and, and I you know, I was just one. I was, but I, I go out to bring this out because I do the same thing with regards to being a pilot. I have had the opportunity because of good fortune to speak at times about things. And I, I go out and say, you know, every once in a while and I, it, it came to me one day in big time as a guy came up and started questioning me, his brother was killed and shot down in one of those Hueys in Vietnam. And that, that's humbling. A lot of Vietnam veterans, people ask you why you don't talk about it more, this or that. And I, I, maybe I do talk about it, and maybe I talk about it too much at times, possibly. But I understand there is a guilt with coming back because you realize that you—you the good Lord and fortune, you survived. And when I look back and the more I review what I did in in fighters, I lost at least 17 friends throughout my career in in aviation. And that was one of my reasons for getting out is I wanted to start a family. And Judy and I talked about it. And I said, you know, this is not where I think we want to be, you know. And a lot of guys, that didn't bother them. They they stayed in for a whole career of doing that. But I, I felt like I didn't want my wife. We actually developed a code when I was at Davis-Monthan because we lost several people in training. And we were not allowed to call home when there was an accident or an incident and say such and such went down or something happened. But it happened frequently enough that we, I, Judy and I had a code, and, I, and a lot of the pilots did this. And all I would do is I would call Judy and I would say, Sweetheart, I'm on the ground, and I'd hang up. That was it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just to and let that was know. my
0: code, to let her know that somebody somebody was down. And, and what I found out and what I would see, especially in combat, but I also saw it in Vietnam, and the first two guys that we lost in our squadron were two instructors, were two of the best pilots that I'd ever flown with. And in my mind and in my heart, I knew that those guys, I felt at least, were better pilots than I was. I don't know to this day why why they crashed and I went down in the desert. I don't think we ever found out what took that airplane down. This kind of stuff happens in this business. My point is that, yeah, I was a decent athlete. But I, I've gotten a lot of accolades, especially because I have the Silver Star, the Distinguished Flying Cross, 10 Air Medals, and a lot of other things. And a lot of that all goes back to what I was doing in Vietnam in the Silver Star and a MiG kill a lot of guys who went up there and never had the opportunity to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time to be able to have aerial combat with a MiG. I never met a fighter pilot who didn't want to fly and fight a MiG. It just happened that the MiGs came up and attacked us, and I had the opportunity to be a part of a crew to take out a MiG-21 and Obviously, we, we protected the airplanes we were supposed to, the 105s, we, we saved them, theoretically. Because of that, and, and I survived, I'm put into a position once in a while that's very uncomfortable. I am not a hero. I was doing what I was doing uh, out of self-defense. And the biggest thing I can say, and when people ask me about combat pilots and people, most guys that I know have been either an athletic team, or some type of family group or a group of people that they they think and they love and they, they, they respect. And I would often tell people that I was doing not what I was doing after, especially when things started getting dark and back over there and we started losing airplanes and some bad things happened. I wasn't doing it because I felt like I was a hero or doing anything. and I was frightened every time I went up, but I was afraid not to go. I was afraid of letting that other guy down when I'd go out on a flight line and guys would be crawling into their airplanes and I'd look down the line and see everybody pre-flying their airplane they'd all nod and I knew what they were thinking every one of them was thinking this is going to be a bad day and somebody may not be coming back and I briefly tell the story of one day we are out with a flight of four and we lost an airplane and when we came back I'm in a revetment which is where the airplanes are parked and a guy in a bunker next to her, from the revetment next to me comes over and he's just a young airman no shirt sweaty greasy looking and he comes over and he looks at me and he says lieutenant my airplane didn't come back and I said yep he looks at me and he says did my airplane let him down did I do anything wrong And of course, I said to him, No, you did everything right. You know, a missile took his airplane down, and there wasn't anything you could have done about it.
1: So, let me back up just a minute here and talk about you had a passion at a young age for flying, right? You go to the University of Illinois, you get into Air Force ROTC, and you leave the university, and you're in the Air Force. And this is 1966, so it's early on in Vietnam in our involvement. Correct. Fairly early on, at least in terms of the Air Force. Right. And you, you are then a member of the 480th Tactical Fighter Squadron. And do you know when you joined that group that you're going to Vietnam?
0: I suspected that I, that I was. You're, you're groomed from this right from the beginning. Just to give you an idea, when I went through pilot training and we we were given our fighter squadron assignments, our tact officer takes all the guys who have fighter assignments aside, and he himself had been an F-100 pilot. And he said, guys, I'm going to give you 24 hours to decide that this is the airplane you want. I am okaying you to be. Everybody who wants to fly these is not being approved to do it. You guys have selected it, and you are being deemed qualified to be fighter pilots. But he said, all I'm going to say is you're going to be trained to kill things and break things. And he said, this is not what everybody is really psychologically and otherwise trained, you know, capable of doing. I don't want you to embarrass me, the United States Air Force, or yourself. The government's going to spend a lot of money to train you to break things and kill things. And he said, if you can't do that, now's the time. Fast because there are other airplanes that you're more than capable of flying that won't be assigned to do that.
1: So, what are you thinking at that moment?
0: You know, I'm a young guy. I, you know, I don't think I thought of anything. I, I'm just, you know, I'm so excited about being able to go fast in an airplane. I'm not, to be real, I, I, I don't think I processed at all what he was saying.
1: You think about it now, though, don't you? Oh, yes.
0: I think about it a lot now. But yes. And then I, I just, it, you know, it, it, it happened, as, as I said. A fighter squadron and a flight is a team. And you get, to, you get to know those guys. You know every one of them forward and back. And you tra- when you got somebody flying six inches off your wingtip that's either leading you or you're flying off of his wingtip, you have the ultimate confidence in that person. If he jerks that airplane at the wrong time and does the wrong thing, he's going to take you both out. And you learn to trust that guy beyond belief and to support him. You're not going to let him down. He's not going to let you down. And I think in most combat situations, that's exactly what happens. You think of your family, but you're, it's part of the way you're trained and brought up. You know, yet I was just brought up as a middle-class young man. My dad was a World War II veteran that was wounded. He had a 50% disability the rest of his life. Uh, due to being w- w- wounded uh, in World War II. And uh, he never talked about it. He never, ever talked about it with
1: me. Did you try to get him to talk about it?
0: I, You know, I would ask him questions, and he would just divert it. And I knew he didn't want to talk about it, so I, I didn't. Leave worry. it alone. So I didn't. But I, the, one of the proudest things I had, he was there when I got my wings. My dad saw me being, uh, you know, I... I was always promoted a little bit ahead. I was never necessarily the smartest guy in the class, but I was always up there in a leader category, and I was one of the guys that, that I got promoted. I, I was given places of responsibility, and because of that, throughout my career, there were certain accolades, and, and the military was always good about putting it in the press, and my little town at Chillicothe would be in the newspaper, and my mother and my dad were tremendously proud, and that made me really happy to please them due to athletics in my high school i learned what competition was i learned to fight hard in order to be a part of a team and to join to learn the respect of those people and to learn what it was like to be a team player and that stood me well in the military
1: you're with the 480th and your mission is uh, the F-4 Phantom, mm-hmm. and that's a two-seater. Yes. Uh, and you are the guy in back, as it's called. Yes. And that, that's
0: the, a term that came out later, but yes, I'm, I am the pilot in the back.
1: And what is the responsibility of the pilot in the back?
0: The F-4 in the beginning was a very complex airplane. The guy in the back is responsible to get the navigation system up and running. You had the responsibility for running the radar, to run radar intercepts on any targets, to run radar, to navigate by the radar if necessary. You're the and weapons guy. You are, so basically, you're the weapons system operator on the airplane. And the Air Force initially decided to put pilots in the back with full controls in the Phantom, the F-4Cs.
1: So when you're in air-to-air, you're not pulling the trigger, but you're telling the guy in front, now's the time to pull the trigger.
0: What you're doing is you're locking on, giving the uh, computers a chance to get a tracking solution such that the indication in the front seat and in the back seat will accept the missile. On the day that we engaged the MiG, I was telling the aircraft commander, Swede, we were too close. I was getting those indications on the radar. I knew that we were getting within missile parameters we were going to be too close to the airplane to successfully fire a missile. And so I saw that and I was telling him that and you know he was adjusting to that. We knew that time was limited before he was going to fire an ATOL missile and take out the 105.
1: So the, the, the F-4 is a very fast airplane. Yes. And the most sophisticated vehicle of the air that we had at that point in time. Correct. Very complicated ship. Yes. You had how many missions overall? 153? 153. And most of those missions early on in 1966 were over Cambodia over Laos when we weren't supposed to be there right
0: that's that's correct and in country as we called it in south vietnam in, supporting the troops
1: but then you start going north correct and this is serious stuff correct when you're over North Vietnam, are you consistently taking anti-aircraft fire? I
0: don't ever remember our squadron because of where we were located, the furthest north base in South Vietnam, just 17 miles from the DMZ. We were normally scheduled, there were, there were, called route packs, there were six packages, one, two, three, four, five, and six. One being the one closest to the South DMZ and six being one furthest north. Because of our position, we were normally scheduled quite often in route pack five and six. I never ever got to route pack five and six without seeing missiles and or flak, ever. North Vietnam was the most, and I believe to this day, the most heavily defended area that we've ever seen. It's an area the size a little bit larger, I believe, than California. And they literally had thousands of gun sites Hundreds of missile sites, they continued to move those sites around and to increase that armament, which is why we had so many POWs and why we lost so many airplanes.
1: So every time you go up, and by the way, you say we lost so many airplanes, I think I read that there were like 500 Phantoms that went down, F-4s, that went down during correct. So that was a heavy loss rate. Correct. Every time you went up then, you could expect, when you look at the other pilots getting into their aircraft, you nodded at each other. Mm-hmm. You knew you were gonna take some crap from the ground that day. Correct, every time. Yes, I was, I was frightened, and
0: I think probably everybody was frightened. Uh, I was more afraid not to go. I was more afraid of letting my friends down, my fellow pilots, and my family and my country than I was of going. So yes, I was frightened, but I was more frightened not to do what I was trained to do.
1: Put me in your seat in the F-4 when you're up and you're taking anti-aircraft fire. What's happening around you? What do you feel? What do you sense? What do you hear and see?
0: I know that the adrenaline flowed a lot. It's very difficult to, to explain your, your feelings and your emotions, but I will tell you that they gave us go-no-go pills. They tested us when we got over there. They knew, they being the medical staff, you're going to be emotionally wrung out and so they gave us these pills and sometimes after you know you'd be soaking wet the adrenaline would be pumping so badly by the time you got down you're just emotionally drained sometimes you literally would be helped out of the cockpit uh, after a really bad mission I mean you were that bad and so they gave you these pills and 20 or 30 minutes prior to landing you could take a pill
1: and what would the pill do?
0: It, it was, it, I don't know what it was to this day. It was some kind of an upper, but it would just perk you up. Your eyes would open and all at once you're, you're feeling good.
1: Like an amphetamine or yeah, something? Yeah, it was some, yeah.
0: I don't know what it was. But it, I, when I got home, I had a small vial of them that was full because I didn't like to take them and I didn't take them that often. My wife asked me what they were, and I just sort of laughed and told her, and she immediately poured them down the toilet, and got rid of them.
1: <laughs> Those are my uppers from combat.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what they were. So I don't know how long they had them. I don't know whether every squadron got them, but I know we did. They gave them to us, and uh, I, I didn't. I didn't rely on them. They made us take them as a test, and we were monitored by flight surgeons and stuff to make sure you would you would, you know, and I don't remember exactly how long that test was or what it was, but we did it. But yes, so the point was, yes, the flights were very draining emotionally. And I can just tell you, you were operating on adrenaline. If you can ever imagine the most frightened you've ever been in your life, and if you can imagine doing that over and over and over, the body reacts and you learn to to deal with it. But I can also tell you that some people didn't deal with it so well. We had one guy who lost wasn't eating and was lost so much weight he was grounded and taken sent to saigon in a ground job he you know uh, we had one flight over to the Donwar bridge that was the worst flight i was ever on in my life and one of the pilots come off the target went into afterburner which is what you're doing climbing up and headed north and he locked up and he was going supersonic heading into china and we yelled at him and yelled at him and finally we you know either the co-pilot and or he took control of the airplane and got the airplane turned around and they came back and landed. No one said a thing to him. No one reported him. We never discussed it. I think everybody knew he had flown through hell, and his response was to get away from hell as fast as he could, and the direction he came off of the target was north into China. He didn't know. He didn't care. He was just going to get away from that what he had been flying through as fast as he could. And so I saw it happen, and yes, uh, in this case, we all just understood.
1: You guys had a lot of armament on the F-4. You were directed to take out Uh, surface-to-air missile bases but you also had to protect other aircraft so a lot of times when you're up you're flying in uh, in a formation to protect like the 105s yes and the whole notion that when you're doing that is that you've got to do everything in your power to make sure that that aircraft you're protecting is able to deliver its payload yes you're going to take some hits doing that
0: everybody's taking hits up there yes it's just a matter of how much. Uh, every mission, everybody, especially in Route Pack 5 and 6, which just became the main stay of our assignments, uh, it's it's a bad area, and you just knew that you were in the shooting gallery and that it, it, you were going to be there and you were going to be being shot at. Uh, it was just uh, just something you accepted.
1: So take me to this day, July Fourteenth, 1966, and you and... Your fellow pilot mm-hmm. are up in your F-4, and you're protecting another group of aircraft that are going in to hit a, a SAM site. Correct. And what happened?
0: We were orbiting between six and 10,000 feet, weaving back and forth over the airplanes that you are escorting. You can't protect anybody from guns or missiles, but you can protect them from the MiGs. Uh, the North Vietnamese are starting to realize what the Wild Weasel airplanes, the 105s, are there. They're there to take out. Uh, the guns and missile sites, and they would send up MIGs to attack those airplanes. Uh, My squadron, at that time, we had never lost an aircraft to an enemy aircraft, so it was a big deal. You realize your whole responsibility, your whole reason for being there is to keep the MIGs off the airplanes. So that's what we were doing. We're looking and monitoring uh, the air. You're flying, you're jinking a lot. Your airplane is going up, down, left, right. A lot because of the flak that's coming up. But at the same time, you have to monitor the 105s, keep them in sight, make sure that they're staying with you. Eyeballs are looking for missiles. You're looking for enemy aircraft. And that's that's essentially what you're doing. There's nothing you can do about the flak.
1: And here comes an enemy aircraft.
0: Immediately. I think everyone saw it within a split second. Someone yelled, MiG coming up from 6. And you look down and you see this silver MiG-21 as we head down towards the MiG, we're closing rapidly, and I tell Swede, loud and clear, that we're we're too fast, we're, we're closing too rapidly. We got inside of 1,500 feet, which is a normal kill area. You want to be outside of that. We were probably closed within maybe 500 feet. We fired a missile too close. The missile went up over the left wing of the MiG and went to who knows where. He fires a second missile, and that second missile goes out maybe... By this time, we're, we're getting some separation, and the MiG knows we're behind him. He saw our first missile go by and miss him, and he has lit his afterburner, rotated his nose, and he's starting to climb away, which we now are accomplishing breathing a little bit better because we now know that he's not going to be able to take out the, the 105 he's tracking because he's separating.
1: And he's so, on the run.
0: He's on the run. As he noses up into the, into the blue sky, we really get a good silhouette With the MiG accelerating away from us and us out there, we fire another missile and the missile goes up the tailpipe. At first, it looked like nothing's going to happen, but then in a matter of milliseconds, I'm sure, it exploded and the airplane just completely comes apart in front of us, all kinds of parts and pieces flying all over.
1: Your downing of the MiG-21 became a big deal, a really big deal, because the young man from Chillicothe, Illinois, was party to this aerial kill.
0: Yes. Well, it it wasn't just the young man. It became a a big deal to my parents and to my little town, of course. It was a big deal in other respects, because in the war, this was the third, second. We were the second MiG-21 kill. And in our same flight, Ron Martin ended up taking a MIG from behind us that was trying to get to our aircraft.
1: So two in one day.
0: So two in one day. It became national news, and it was good news for the military and for the Air Force and for all of us because it was a, a major success. Two MIGs destroyed in one day, and they were the top top MIGs in the uh, Russian inventory And uh, we had taken down two of them, which was a big indicator to the world that and our, it could our, be done.
1: Our government wanted to run it up the flagpole, let everybody know.
0: Absolutely, they did. They wanted to uh, yell, uh, let you know, announce in big fashion uh, our success because even though it was early in the war and and. and sentiment hadn't turned totally against us there were enough problems in the war with the united states and the way it was being portrayed in the media it was starting to look bad we were losing so many pilots and airplanes mainly to ground fire But we also lost a few to the MiGs because, once again, they were being vectored in behind us when we didn't necessarily know they were there. They were under radar control, and they would come in, and it was very upsetting to us. They would come in at high speed, fire their ATOL missiles. They would take the kill if they got it. If not, they would disengage, and they'd go back as fast as they could. They'd run from us, and they would land. We, at that time, and I think for the entire war, as a matter of fact, we're not allowed to attack their airfields. We literally were over the top of Fukien and Kep airfields when we took out the two MIGs that we took out on that day, on July fourteenth, nineteen sixty-six. Their airplanes could land once they got in a traffic pattern and got their gear down and landed. They were safe, and so that's what they did. There's even one story of one day of one of well, our. Wait, one, you
1: you did you weren't allowed to attack the air bases? We were
0: not allowed to attack their air bases. That's exactly right. There were a lot of targets. We were only allowed to attack sanctioned targets in North Vietnam. We were not allowed to go to North Vietnam and pick a target of opportunity, ever. Now, guns and missile sites were were good, but there were refueling depots. There were bridges. There were a lot of things that were there for the war effort. I was told, as an example, 90% of the population in North Vietnam is along the Red River. 90% of their population is along that river, is protected by dams. And I was told that during the monsoon, if we had taken out a couple of their dams, we could have crippled all of North Vietnam. And of course, that would have meant a lot of civilian life and other things, and we weren't going to do that. And we were not allowed to do it. Our pilots were highly disciplined. We were not allowed to penetrate the Chinese communist border to the north for any circumstance, and we were not allowed to hit any targets that were not, we were only scheduled to hit that were approved from Washington. We got our frag orders in each day that would indicate the targets that we were going to hit the next day. And we were given a time to do it, and that's exactly what we had to do.
1: Did you know in 1966 what we would later learn about the capture of many of our pilots, like John McCain in 67 is captured and he winds up at the Hanoi Hilton and is tortured. Did you guys know about the risks of being captured and what were you supposed to do, name, rank, serial number, that sort of thing?
0: We knew from every war experience and everything we'd ever heard, we're all military people. And we knew that you're attacking our homeland for a lot of reasons. Because we already knew, too, we'd see guys on the ground that were shot. And we'd see, that, you know, if they, they would shoot a guy that was being hosted, or being rescued or picked up. We knew that it was not going to be good. We knew that they were going to be tortured and they were going to be abused. We did not know, obviously, how bad. We had no way of finding that out, but we knew. We suspected that people were being abused. We had no direct knowledge of it, but we suspected that they were. Once you were in North Vietnam, you were not going to get out of there without being a, a prisoner of war.
1: So when you took off every day and you did that knowing nod with the other pilots, was that as much to say, we know what the risk is. We know what we're getting into here. We know what the consequence could be if we are brought down.
0: You certainly never thought about it in those terms, but yes. I mean, we knew we knew what we were facing and doing. We really believed that we were doing the right thing and that our brothers-in-arms were being killed in South Vietnam. We, we saw the way the Viet Cong acted and blowing people up and, and killing people. And we didn't talk about it and debate it. But we I think most of us knew, we knew from our past and the Cold War and everything else that the world was uh, not a safe place because of, Communism, You know, we felt, most of us, I think, and I'm speaking for myself, but I think it was universally believed that we were were doing the best we could for our country and for the world and for freedom. You know, I certainly still believe that to this day. There was a lot of misinformation, a lot of bad things happened. I'm not saying that the war was totally justified or whatever, but the military guys were doing what they were told to do and believed in our country and in and, and freedom and, and were trying to do what they thought was the right thing.
1: There's an aspect to this, to the whole situation that, that you mentioned to me earlier. And that is, there were a lot of lost flyers in Vietnam. And perhaps not as much attention is paid to that fact. More, much more is paid to the guys who are on the ground, who fought in the jungle, who endured awful things. But there is this other aspect.
0: Almost all of the POWs were pilots. And I don't take anything away from anybody. Uh, you know, I, I was lucky to be where I was. I was in, at Da Nang, restricted to base, uh, lived in an area protected by Marines all around the base. Uh, my hat goes off to any, any, anybody who was over there and did their job, and there were thousands of guys that, that did their job and did it well. Having said that, I sometimes get a little bit miffed because, uh, as I said, almost all of the POWs were pilots that were shot down over there. And that's what my job was, and that's what I saw happening over there. It was, it was at times very frightening to crawl under the airplane knowing what we were doing, knowing that somebody probably wasn't going to come back and knowing that it was uh, the environment we were going to be flying in, what we were going to be doing. And somehow the guys that did that, Really, that story has never really come out that much. I think it's known, but it's not. It, John Q. Public doesn't necessarily. All the pictures and everything you see is a guy with a gun and a bayonet and the grunts that did the battle. I'm not taking one thing away from those guys. All I'm saying, there were, other, there were guys in the air. There was
1: another aspect. There's another the aspect to the yeah, war right. that
0: doesn't get the notoriety of what, of what those guys did. And even the military, I mean, they laugh. My friends, my Marines will say, oh, you're sleeping in a bed every night. You're not sleeping out in the mud. You're sleeping in a bed every night. And I say, yes, I am. That's true. But I'm also going up in combat every day. And at least my squadron did, fighting guns and missiles every day.
1: Well, McCain was captured about a year after you came home, I think, right? Yes. Were you aware of consequences if you were downed? And did you know at that point in time, which was fairly early, that you would be going maybe to the Hanoi Hilton, which didn't have a name then, I know, but... Um,
0: yes, yes, we did. The rumors were uh, were rampant. In fact, uh, I was told the, the day after the MIG kill, it hit the wires over here and everything, the following week, the names, uh, the pilots' names, and of which I was one, because they picked it up, I'm sure, out of our own newspapers, and whatever we called her Tokyo Rose, uh, Hanoi Rose, at the time, made a comment uh, on the radio over the comment over there that we didn't have access to. But I was told
1: using your name,
0: using my name, that by the way, oh, you know, cow. there's a there's a couple of you we'll be looking for. Oh, jeez, uh, you know, uh, you're not you're not the heroes that you think you are, and if, you you're know, a marked man to a certain extent. Yes. We did know that that stuff was going at, uh, mm-hmm. in Hanoi. We were, we were mentally prepared, uh, you know, and, of course, they were still telling us, all you really should be telling them is name, rank, and serial the number. We didn't fly with any identification. I didn't fly with squadron patches or anything. Do you have a 45. Uh, uh, I, I carried a—the Air Force offered me a, a 38 combat masterpiece mm-hmm. in a box, and I always carried, like, 12 rounds of 38 tracer ammunition because if you went down in the jungle area, the little pin flare guns that we had wouldn't necessarily penetrate the canopy. Mm-hmm. So you could fire that, that 38 combat masterpiece with a tracer ammo up for them to help find you. And once again, I, I bring out, I am not a hero. I really am not. The really good, the real heroes are still over there or buried or POWs. Those are the guys, you know, they, they paid the ultimate price. And I did not. And I am thankful every day for that. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't earn my keep. and I did. But, you know, I I want people to recognize how many people in our military, the, the deaths. In, and I think people in the modern day, unlike the Vietnam era, people are waking up. In general, the public is now treating these veterans well. I, I recently went on an honor flight, and that's one of the ultimate recognitions that all veterans that are eligible are getting. And I my hat's off to the people because those are all paid for through private funding. And it's just a great bunch of people who are supporting and recognizing. And, and some people don't know it, but at least I do. The, the, the mantra is, welcome home. And so that is a special thing to the Vietnam veterans, because Vietnam veterans never, ever had a welcome home. And, uh, but the honor flight gives them, gives them that and, and recognizes all veterans and giving them thank you and a welcome home.
1: Your dad didn't talk about his war experience, but you do. And I want to know what you tell your grandkids about your experience.
0: It's kind of interesting. I've never had, I've never sat down for whatever reason. They know because of certain awards and ceremonies and they know about the honor flight. So indirectly, they know. They know, uh, they've seen me in uniform for celebrations, but the, it's very interesting. I was in aviation from 1963 to 2001. And I, it, it, there was an overlap for a while between the military and civilian aviation. My grandchildren, my granddaughter, who's now 23 years old, was born the year... Before I retired from American Airlines, they never saw me in uniform, none of my I have five grandchildren, and they're all young, you know fifteen through twenty three They don't know not only do they not know about my war experiences they don't they don't they don't know what I did, really, well, they will now Well, now, not yeah, maybe, but I'm just saying, and that's okay, you know their their parents are I love them they're great, working hard and Giving these kids and making sure they go to college, and I've got five, I've got two wonderful children and and their spouses and five wonderful grandchildren, and I, I think I know they're being raised properly, loving freedom and God and country, and their parents are making sure that that happens, and I do, I try to set a good image for that, but um, no, we don't, we don't, we don't really talk about it. I don't, I do have a uniform that I wear at certain events and stuff.
1: Do you you still fit into it?
0: Yeah well I bought a new one.
1: Okay. (laughs) No way I would fit in. I have a couple old
0: flight suits no way but um but because I was asked to participate I was very active and I'm sort of slowing down on that too now at my age.
1: When you were on your honor flight back in July did you go to the wall and find the names of some of the people who went down?
0: Uh yes I did. I had the privilege of having uh my son and my daughter with me, and so they knew. Uh, I, You know, I didn't talk that much about it, but I went, you can look up where people are on the wall, and I had several people there that were, that were, were in it that I knew. So, yeah, I, I, I did do that.
1: Do you have moments, and I guess I'm sure you do, when you look back at your life and you say, I was really lucky, I've done things that a lot of people would never have imagined that they would be doing? I'm I'm blessed in many ways. I, I went through an awful conflict, and I came out with all my pieces parts. Do You have those moments?
0: Oh, every day. The war never leaves me. I, as you saw, I I'm still very emotional. I'm uh, very patriotic, and I'm very emotional about you know whenever I relive just for a moment some of the things I went through. I, I'm sure. You know, we went through, we didn't know what PTSD was. That's, that's a relatively new term. I don't think anybody has ever been in combat that doesn't have some form of PTSD. I don't know how you could, when you see people live and die, and you're a part of that, it's human nature. I, th- I don't think you can have anything other than some form of PTSD. And I'm, you know, I feel like I'm balanced. I han- I'm handling it. Yes, I'm very emotional about what I did, and I'm very thankful that I, I survived and, and if the question is, would you do it again? You know, I've told people before, you couldn't pay me enough money to compensate me for what I did, but I wouldn't sell what I did for any amount of money. What I learned about myself and about life and about my country, it was an unbelievable experience the way it has worked out in my life. I, I thank the good Lord uh, in my own way uh, every day. Uh, I, have been, I have been blessed. I've been blessed by my family. I, you know, I still have the same wife. Fifty-nine years. It'll be sixty years this next year, and she was married to me throughout my aviation career. She went through this every ounce she of the way with me. Bit of she it lived with you. every every bit of it with me, and went to the funerals, and the accidents and the incidents. It became uh, just to give you a, a little bit. Of, you know, I I love things that go fast and do things. So it, one year, a few years back, I bought a Harley. And, you know, we're in a financial situation where I could do that, and I did it, and I went out and paid cash for brand-new Harley and came home with it, and the look in her eyes.
1: You knucklehead. Yep. Get rid of that bike. Yep.
0: <laughs> and so I did keep it a couple years. She never got on it. She was very unhappy, and she let me know. And right. she told me. She said, I went through my whole life supporting you and worrying about you, and now you're going to get on a motorcycle. And so... I got rid of the motorcycle and bought a a Z4, a little sports car. (laughs) Okay.
1: But anyway, yes. My wife and I joke that I may be the king, but she's the boss. Yes. And so your wife just uh, exercised her boss uh, option. Absolutely, (laughs) and she
0: is. And she is in in more ways than you can imagine. A military wife, I mean, she had to take care of the finances, take care of the kids, and even as an airline pilot. You know, a lot of families don't make it. And uh, because you know I'm in Tokyo or London or someplace, and the refrigerator stops working, you know, or the kids uh, do something wrong in school or get a bloody nose, you know, she can't pick up the phone and, and help. I can't help her. That's mom's job. That's mom's job. Yeah. And uh, and she did it. And she did it well. And so yeah.
1: Well, Colonel, I want to thank you for sharing all this. And. I want to tell you, welcome home. Thank you. You're very welcome. I appreciate it. You're very, welcome. I appreciate welcome. what you do. Thank you. Okay. After Vietnam, Duane continued his service in the Air Force, training other fighter pilots. He left his military service at the rank of colonel and followed that with a long career as a pilot for American Airlines. To be able to say, sit back and enjoy your flight, is so welcome and so different from his work in the air over North Vietnam over a half century ago. We're proud to start the new year with this episode of Honor, Thank, Inspire. We hope you found it to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.